Welcome to Back Label Branding with Sydney Luciano. I'm your podcast host, and I'm a marketing creative with a passion for storytelling. Here, we are going to interview female founders who are creating some really innovative brands in the food and beverage space and getting to hear their stories, of course, how they built their brands, some tips and tricks that they use in their marketing practices, and especially now, what they're doing to pivot in a time of COVID to serve their audiences and continue to build the brands into the next iteration that it needs to become. I hope you enjoy. episode, I got to chat with Laura Gabriel, the founder of Paper Plains Wines, a wine brand based in Napa, and they make a beautiful rosé and a red wine. She started the company six years ago with her husband, and while she grew up in Napa and ultimately ended up back there, she did not think that she was going to get into the wine industry at all when she was growing up. Laura actually went to college in Boston for film and made her way to LA after college. And it wasn't until she and her husband were living in Los Angeles and would go and frequent a local wine shop, as well as they became sort of the hosts of the, for their friends, throwing dinner parties and introducing their friends to cool wines that they realized, wow, how fun would it be to actually make a wine that really fits into the retail shops that we go to and we gravitate towards as well as um, a type of wine that is casual and fun that is exactly the type of thing we like to drink with our friends and thus started their journey into becoming winemakers and for her especially to learning a lot about the nuances of marketing a wine brand. Well I appreciate you taking a second that today to chat. Yeah. I'm excited. I'm excited to have you. It's a fun project I've been working on and selfishly just um, a fun excuse to talk with and hear about what people are doing. And I feel like, especially at this moment in time, it's like fascinating the, just the marketing landscape, but just the way people are positioning and um, doing things. So some fun stories are coming about, but where are you right now? Uh, yeah, so um, I'm in, in my house in Napa. Uh, we live in downtown Napa. We make all of our wine over in Sonoma, but live in Napa. Um, so I actually have a day job in addition to Paper Plains. So today I was like driving around the valley with um, filming a new little video for us. So we were driving through the vineyard, um, went to check out um, this new winery we're opening um, in a couple of weeks. And um, then had to like grab a sandwich, pick up something else at another winery, go back to Napa, drop it off, come home, have a call. Um, so it's definitely not a normal day, but I guess it's kind of what I like about working in the wine industry is there's no normal day. Um, and so it's always something different and it keeps things interesting. Totally. How, I guess growing up in Napa, you were probably destined <laughs> to be in the wine business, but how, how did it happen for you? Well, yeah, I mean, I, uh, I, it's sort of like, you know, you let something go and if it comes back, you know, it's yours or destiny or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that it is a little destiny. Also, it's a little bit like once you live here, you can't ever live anywhere else because it's just the best place. Um, I grew up here. My parents worked in wine. So I worked in wine all through high school. Um, 
in hospitality and kind of doing odd jobs here and there. Um, but then I went to film school in Boston where I ended up meeting my now husband and he had just turned 21. And so we were checking out like lots of cool little craft breweries in Boston. And um, so when we moved to LA after college, um, we spent a lot of time coming up to Napa and visiting my parents. Kyle started brewing beer. Uh, we found kind of our favorite little local wine shops in LA um, and started hanging out there a lot. And we started just to think about like what we wanted our lives to look like. Um, you know, we were probably 23 years old and working 15 hour days at film studios and these glamorous lives that we had sort of imagined for ourselves. It wasn't really um, that glamorous at all. And we were getting paid nothing and and so we thought, well, if we're going to do something, it's like now's the time. Um, we didn't have any kids. We didn't have any pets. And so it was kind of easy to, to take that leap. And so in um, 2014, we crowdfunded. We um, made 180 cases of rosé. And through the whole process, we just loved it so much. I mean, from designing the label to selling our first 10 cases and starting the Instagram and um, creating the website and um, lear really learning how to make wine. It was just such a fun process. And we thought like, I don't know where this is going to take us, but we want to see. And so we quit our jobs. Um, at that point, I sort of realized that wine marketing was something that I could do. I didn't ever, I never went to school for marketing. So I didn't really know like what marketing was exactly, but um, I loved all of it. And so we quit our jobs in LA. We moved to Napa. Um, Kyle worked as a harvest intern and I got a job at a larger wine company um, as an assistant doing marketing. And I just kind of learned um, more of the, the traditional wine marketing side. So I could sort of learn the rules to then know the rules that I was breaking for paper planes, because we've always joked that wine marketing is like, you know, 20 years behind every other industry. So uh, for sure. I can attest to that. <laughs> so yeah. you, your first 10 cases, um, that was made while you were still living in Los Angeles. Yeah. So our first vintage was 2014. Um, we crowdfunded in the spring. We made the wine in, um, in the fall, obviously. Um, and then in January when it was bottled, we um, just kind of started around town and Kyle went to, so we'd been hanging out a lot at Silver Lake Wine, which is our neighborhood wine shop. And so um, Kyle kind of mentioned one time we were in there, like, guys, we actually like made wine. And they, they knew because there was a guy there named Jasper who we're actually still friends with. He um, started his own wine company called Angelino, which is a super cool um, urban winery in downtown LA. Um, but we knew Jasper. And so we were kind of talking to him about the process of making wine. And so he's like, well, yeah, you got to come in like when it's finished. So we came in and Kyle um, had Jamil and Jasper taste the wine and yeah, Jamil was like, oh, well, take, he wrote 10 cases on a post-it and handed it to Kyle and Kyle was like, what do I do with this? Um, but he was just so excited and he was on his lunch break. He worked at Disney Animation and so he called me and was like, I just sold our first 10 cases to Silver Lake Wine and it was just like the best thing in the world. Oh my goodness. That's a great first account. Hey. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. So 
2014. So crazy um, that you're going into your 2020 harvest. What what is Paper Planes today, either from a, a from cases or um, are you throughout California? You know how I guess I want to understand where you're at now and how much has grown. Yeah. So we. When we started Paper Planes, we were like 25 and 27. So um, we were young and naive and had this sort of five-year plan that sounded like the dream. And so basically our idea was in five years, we will have a tasting room or, you know, have some sort of urban winery and be doing it full time. And we're going to be making X amount of wine and everything's going to be wonderful. But um, we've learned that it's not that easy. And every year we joke that we learn another lesson that we think is going to end it, but we end up coming out on top and it's been, we've been smarter every year. Um, And so the first three or four years, I would say that we um, grew, we pretty much doubled every year, which was about the most that we could afford to do um, because we crowdfunded to launch. So we didn't have any outside investors. So we grew as much as we could afford to grow each year. Um, and then in, um, with the 2018 harvest, we made a lot more wine. We um, crested the, well, I guess I'll back up. In 2017, we launched um, our flight school cans and our um, hidden track Grenache and hidden track Pinot. So that was big for us. So we made just paper planes rosé for three years and then we launched the cans and the red wines. So that was really exciting. Um, they were really well received. And so in 2018, we made a lot more wine and the plan was for one of us to go full time with paper planes in 2019. Um, But uh, I got pregnant and we decided that uh, maybe it wasn't the best time. And so um, we had a lot of wine to figure out how to sell. And it was hard because we knew it was like some of the best wine we ever made, but you still have to sell it. Um, And it takes a lot of work. And so we, after getting through that vintage last year, we made a bit less wine in 19. Um, luckily, coming into the global pandemic where, um, you know, all restaurants are closed down, um, we've been lucky that we made a smaller amount this last year. Um, but that's just a really long-winded way of saying that we grew very quickly at first, then we sort of scaled back, and now we're kind of sitting at that more scaled back. So between the four different wines, um, or sorry, three different, four different wines, yeah, two rosés, Grenache and Pinot, we're making um, less than a thousand cases, so um, probably around like six or seven hundred cases um, this vintage. Awesome, and are most places that people get your product um, directly through the website, restaurants, kind of what's, where's your main consumer base? Um, it's definitely changed. Um, at first it was primarily through, uh, fine wine retailers and restaurants. We had a lot of by the glass action. Um, we had accounts that were going through like hundreds of cases, basically, maybe not hundreds, but it felt like it every year. Um, and then some of those, a few things happened. I think some of those accounts realized that, um, they could make a sort of like house label rosé and some accounts did, started doing that um, and asked us if we wanted to make it for them, but it wasn't something that we were able to do at the time. Um, and so then some of our business 
shifted then. And then with everything that's been happening the last six months or so, um, you know, most of our business was in restaurants. And so now it's definitely shifted towards um, direct consumer. And we've had interesting new um, channels of business. Uh, we started our membership, which is called Flight Club, about a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago at this point. And so that's been growing pretty steadily. And um, we've started doing virtual tastings, which has actually been um, pretty big for us and even corporate things. Um, so doing um, corporate tastings for different like tech companies or um, things like that, especially during these times, I think a lot of people are looking for ways to bring fun and excitement to their employees. Um, and so we can like ship everyone wine and then jump a little tasting and it's, it's been fun. That's so cool. Just doing more, another version of a Zoom happy hour, but a special. Totally. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, has, you said you like to break the rules when it comes to wine marketing. Um, tell me about that. Is there, has digital, has social media um, always been a part of it? Is it something that you find you have a lot of, like, is that where your customers are? Do, do you really, you know, make a point to be there? I think um, wine is a unique industry in that every, like, so many people are just kind of not doing that or just, <laughs> there isn't as much of that mm -hmm. digital marketing strategy. So I think it's really cool and, and that your, your company is really unique that way. But was it, was it always part of it? When you don't have a lot of money and you don't have a lot of resources, it forces you to get creative. I think that people who have millions of, you know, there's like the age old joke, like how do you make a small fortune in the wine industry? You start with a large one. Um, and so that's kind of like the joke that everyone told us when we were starting uh, Paper Planes. But the, the good thing for us is we didn't have anything to start with. So it wasn't like we had a lot to lose. Um, but I think it makes you, it, it forces you to be creative. And so whereas a lot of people who open a winery in Napa or Sonoma, you know, you have $20 million and you build a winery and you design a super fancy label and you hire a bunch of salespeople and you go out and you just try to sell the wine. Um, but because we couldn't do any of that, it forced us to get creative in the ways that we found customers and the ways that we shared our wine with people. And I think there are some things about traditional wine marketing and traditional brand building in wine it holds true for any brand. Like I think by the glass placements and, um, and re solid relationships with influential sommeliers and things like that will always be really important. Um, but I think that social media and I think that um, partnerships is really something that's not as tapped into as it could be for the wine industry. Things um, like working with um, a brand like Shinola or Kuyana for us really early on was a way that we found customers that we never ever would have been able to um, without that partnership. Um, it's kind of funny though, because sometimes it feels like a double-edged sword. People think that we're a lot bigger than we are um, because we're so like active on social media and I'll get messages sometimes like, can you direct this to your marketing department? And I'm like, this is just me. Um, you know, it's just, um, our, we're not shy about putting our emails on the website and like reach out to us. It's just, it's just the two of us. What were the partnerships you did? Valley Brink Road, who is a, uh, gift box company based in LA. 
we worked with them early on, which was really fun to put on, um, to do a few different things. So Valley Brink Road, um, she, had a, she has a lot of followers on Instagram. Um, her name is Barrett Pendergrass and she's amazing. I got connected to her through our, um, the designers who did our label, who are also a husband and wife team based in Silver Lake, uh, where we lived. Um, I got connected to her through like a nut butter company that had also worked with Project M Plus. And so um, reached out to her and formed this relationship with her. And so she included wine in her gift boxes, which were going to like um, top, top um, entertainment clients and celebrities in LA. She ended up launching a floral design company. And so we had a really fun event at Hotel Covell. Um, and invited all of her top customers and um, psalms. And, and so we were able to share our wine with people, create content for social, um, create a little bit of buzz. Um, and then some of the things, so the thing we did with Shinola down in LA was also with her, we did kind of like a Mother's Day pop-up um, where people could come in and buy the boxes and um, order wine. And so um, and it was a way for us to just meet people. Um, but more than anything I've learned, it's like just about looking busy um, I always feel busy, but apparently like you also need to look busy on social media. And so it's just like all the events and all the things you're doing, people want to, um, people just like want that constant content. Um, and they want to know all the things that are happening. And so it's sometimes even if we only sell like a case of wine, it's all of the noise that we make around it that can be the most important long-term. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, it's more just, it's all perception, right? And um, you are busy. And so it's kind of taking the time to to show or deliberately create things that can show what you're making and the magic you're making or the, whether it is, you know, certain flavors of bridles or, or partnerships. Um, I guess uh, in times, in these times of COVID, how, have you perhaps pivoted or, or shown, shown what you're doing? Um, Cause there isn't as much of that in-person stuff to show. Yeah, we had to cancel a lot of things, which was really sad. I've kind of joked that I've gone through like the stages of grief, which I'm sure everyone has throughout this whole situation where it's sort of denial and then it's, you have acceptance and then you have hope, but then it's sort of ripped out from under you again. And, um, we've just been really like playing it one day at a time. Um, and nothing is, I'll be honest, like totally thought out, like long in advance. It just sort of naturally unfolds. Um, so if someone reaches out to us, um, like we're, we're going to be working with, um, this really cool company called a play that makes really beautiful, like wine carrier totes. Um, and they just reached out to us and they were like, do you want to like trade some product and take some pictures and talk about each other's stuff? And I was like, great. Um, and so things like that come out about really naturally. Um, or we find that um, relationships that we've had with people before just evolve in different ways. Like we've worked with the guys who have Bay Grape in Oakland for a long time. They've been really big supporters of our flight school can. Um, and they opened a restaurant called Mama, which is a super, super cool Italian, like home style Italian restaurant in Oakland. And they opened it about a year ago. And so when everything happened, they tried to figure out pretty quickly how to pivot. And so one of the things they're doing is offering like sandwiches and different sorts of um, beverage options to go. And flight school is one of those um, options. And so just figuring out like what the new opportunities are 
Um, I think that cans have been huge um, in this pandemic. I think at least I know personally, it's like five o'clock hits and I'm like, I just need to open a can. Um, they're just, the size is so perfect because you can just open it without feeling like you're investing too much in like what you're drinking for the rest of the night. Um, it doesn't matter like what you're eating. Um, I think it's also like the way that like to-go cocktails have become popular. I think that people are getting a lot more wine to go and the can just works really well for that. Um, and so we've seen a lot of, um, a lot of renewed interest cans um, in the last six months. That's cool. I, I love a canned rosé. And I love the the size. It's I know it's harder. It can be harder to do, but instead of to have a traditional like soda can, beer can size to have, yeah. have the smaller version is just, is better for wine. We knew that if um, we wanted people to drink it cold and we knew that it, if it takes you, you know, 45 minutes to get to the end of the can, it's not going to be cold anymore. So it needs to be small enough that you can drink it in less than 30 minutes and also I think the thing with the bigger cans you don't realize that they're half a bottle of wine and it's not really a single serve and the can can be a great format for um, like transporting it but it's not really meant to like drink it's not a true single serve um, and so yeah we were we're happy with the format from a like enjoyment uh, point of view but it doesn't definitely doesn't have the best financial so we're still trying to figure out how to make that part work yeah Understandable, but a great way to, I think, as an entryway to get into places and to get into accounts or to get awareness out there because it is really visual. Um, yeah, especially for wine, you know, pouring something in a glass versus physically carrying around a can is is different. Since we're on the topic of cans, so it was year three mm-hmm. that you finally that you decided to launch cans and red wine. How, how did that come mm-hmm. about? Um, why, why Rosé in the first place? And why did you feel the need or, or, or you were like, yep, it's ready. Let's do, let's expand. Um, Cause that's a big decision. Yeah. yeah. So I'll first answer the question about why Rosé in the first place. Um, so it was Silver Lake Wine was for sure like the inspiration. I mean, when we walked into that shop and there's like the rosé table that pops up, you know, every like February and it just makes you so happy. Um, and so we started buying a lot of rosé from Silver Lake Wine, a lot of really amazing rosé. Um, most of it at the time, you know, this is like probably 20, 2011 through 2013 was French. Um, and we loved it. And we just found we were definitely the people um, at that age that were like hosting all of the dinner parties and all of the, the social functions at our house. Um, and because I'm from Napa, a lot of times people would, you know, expect there to be wine on the table, but they would either feel like maybe they didn't like wine or they didn't know if they liked wine or they felt pressure to act a certain way when they're tasting it. Um, people would say things like, what, can you tell me what I should be tasting in the glass or what am I smelling here or what? And there's something about rosé that when it's on the table, people don't get caught up in those questions. Um, it's more like a cocktail or um, like a, just an aperitif where it's just a little bit simpler in its, um, in its enjoyment. And I don't think that it's a simpler wine because I think that rosés can actually be incredibly complex. And I think that, that our rosé is definitely that. Um, but there's something that feels a little bit more lighthearted about rosé than other wines. Um, and we felt like we had something really to say about that because at the time there weren't really any... Um, 
California rosés that we felt were expressing the possibility of freshness and vibrancy and acid and all the things that you love about French rosé, but with a little bit more complexity and weight um, and not sweetness, but just body that could stand up to food and, and more of a year round wine. So it's not just like um, a porch pounder or summer water, or, you know, something like that. So, um, so yeah, so we felt like we had something we wanted to say about wine. One thing that we, about rosé, and one thing that we've always said about wine is that we don't want to, we're not going to make something just because we want to make it. There's a, like a million things I would love to try to make, but if I don't have something to say about it, then I don't want to just fill the space with more of something that isn't going to really bring something to the table for our customers and, and for everyone. And so we only wanted to make wines where we felt like we really had something to say. And so it started with Rosé. Um, because of the point in our lives that we were in and um, because we felt like there was just kind of this this blank space in that category. Um, and we got lucky with sort of the the trajectory of, of Rosé really picking up. Um, I think that Silver Lake influenced that, um, but we got lucky with, with the, the timing of it all. Um, and then with expanding, because rosé is such like a fun drink, we found that we were drinking it all the time, um, whether we were at a picnic in the meadow or going for a hike or at the beach or at someone's pool. And so we were like, God, it would just be so much more convenient to not have this glass bottle. And similarly at the time there was, I can think of maybe like two other producers who were making like pretty decent canned wine, um, but no one was really doing it in 250 milliliter cans. and um, no one was doing it with like a really high quality paper label and really cool packaging. And so we felt like there was just so much opportunity there. We just wanted to explore. We didn't know if it would work. When I asked Kyle if we could do it, he basically just said no, um, because we know nothing about canning. No one really cans in the wine industry. And so when we called all the people that we called three years prior to learn about, you know, how to make rosé, how to order wine labels, no one knew how to do that for cans. And so it was really like a whole new learning process, but we ended up finding some of the best people that we still work with today. And now people call us and ask how we did it, which is kind of crazy because we don't consider ourselves experts, but we've been doing it for long enough now that um, we, we sort of know what we're doing. And um, with the red wines, um, so the cans are called flight school, which is meant to be sort of a play on paper planes and how it's sort of like your, your training wheels for paper planes. And then the red wines, which are called hidden track, uh, we make a Grenache and a Pinot Noir. And those came about because we had been sourcing Pinot Noir from the vineyard up in the Russian River Valley um, called Windsor Oaks for a few years. And we just loved the fruit so much. And um, the grower mentioned that he had um, some Grenache available and, um, and we love Grenache. Um, I think it's a really interesting variety because it can be bright and fresh, but it also has a really great texture. Um, and I think similar to the rosé that we make, we felt like a lot of people are making Grenache in California, but a lot of it's in like a little bit of a riper style. So we wanted to see what would happen if we made it in sort of that lighter style. Um, and then the Pinot, we just knew the fruit was so good. We had to see what it would taste like if we 
turned it into a red wine very simply. I think similar to what I was saying before about the Grenache, like in the Russian River, especially people pay a lot for fruit. They put a lot of new oak on it and they manipulate it. And we wanted to just pick the fruit and let it turn into wine and see how delicious it would be. And that's the type of wine that we wanted to drink. And so we would try to make it. Um, so we just kind of felt inspired to do it. That's awesome. Uh, how'd you come up with the name Paper Plains? Where'd the brand come from? So the name Paper Plains was um, inspired by a trip that we took up to um, Sonoma when we were working on the wine. We knew that we were starting this project and we didn't have a name and it was what was keeping us up at night because we knew we had to come up with something. But anyone who's ever named anything knows that it's really, really hard because you think you have the perfect name and then it's taken. Um, but we were waiting to board our flight at um, Southwest in Burbank and started folding our boarding passes into paper planes when we were standing in line. And it turned this otherwise totally unmemorable moment into this real connection between the two of us and this memory. And that's what we have always wanted our wine to, to be for people. We think that if you put a grape bottle of wine on the table, it turns just a normal dinner into a memory that can last forever. Um, and not only memories, but, but moments that inspire you to, to do things. I think Paper Plains was um, started with a conversation over a long dinner. And now here it is. And we want, we hope that other people have Paper Plains on their table. And um, it causes them to linger and talk about all the potential of things that may be and hopefully inspire them for businesses um, or whatever it may be, trips in the future. Sure. Oh, sweet. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's a sweet story. Yeah. I like that it was, um, it was simple. Um, and your packaging is beautiful. I, I love the cans and I, I think they just, there's clearly a reason why people love them and love to pick them up. And um, I think packaging is very important, especially in this space. Um, what did I, okay. Oh, speaking of, I want to, I think this is an interesting question or concept because um, everyone I think has an opinion of if they can work with their partner or not. What, mm -hmm. what is it like working with and owning a business together? Um, is it something you always wanted to do? And, and how, how does that work in terms of your roles? And do you fight over the business? <laughs> Yeah, I would say that we got we got really lucky because we started when we were really young. Um, we had been together for a while. So I think we'd been together for probably five or six years before we started the business. So we knew that we balanced each other out very well. Um, I'm always the like the big dreamer and the one with all the big ideas. And Kyle's the one that can actually make it happen. And he's the one that um, understands the details and the financials and and all of that and can really actually bring it to life. Um, and so I think that at the time we didn't know kind of what it would take, but it turns out that we actually make really great business partners. There are certain times when I definitely like, I'll have a big idea like the canning for instance, and Kyle will say, I don't wanna do that. Um, but then he'll kind of sit with it for a little while and say, okay, I think I can figure it out. I think you're right. I think." this could be really cool for us. Um, but then there will also be times where I have an idea and 
we'll talk about it for a while and we'll just decide like this is just either too much or it wouldn't work for X, Y, Z. Um, but I think that day to day it works really well because we have different strengths. And so Kyle makes the wine and handles all of the logistics and operations. Um, he's super smart and had been brewing beer for a long time and had read a lot of books and um, taken winemaking classes and worked several harvests. And so he definitely knows what he's doing there. Um, I never try to intervene or ask questions there. Um, and then I'm, you know, similar in the marketing side. Um, I at least somewhat know what I'm doing. And so he's just kind of like, great. I don't want to mess around with that space. Like you, you do it. Sometimes in the sales part, it can get tough because neither of us really like to sell. And so we'll have, we'll say, oh, we have like, you know, we need to reach out to these accounts. But we really don't want to. And then we just sit on the couch one night when we're like watching reruns of an old TV show and we'll just like bang out a bunch of emails and we'll be like, see, it feels so much better now. Um, and I would say there are definitely nights that I like wake up in the middle of the night and think about something that stresses me out about the business, but we never really fight about it. Um, I think when we, we go through similar emotions, um, so when we're someone's anxious, the other person's kind of anxious too, and we sort of try to talk ourselves off the ledge. Yeah, it's kind of nice to have someone who does totally get it, um, you know, to, to have that sounding board and, and have someone truly understand, which, yeah. which is pretty sweet. Yeah, um, we try to set like boundaries, like not talking about it after a certain time because it's hard. I mean, I heard someone make the joke the other day about how it's not considered working from home anymore. It's more like living at work. Um, and I, but I felt like that for a long time. I felt like I've lived at work because we drink wine all the time. All of our friends either make wine or work in hospitality or in restaurants. And um, so we're constantly, and even when I was a kid, like everything that we were doing had to do with my dad's job and wine. And so it's always been so intertwined. Um, but I think it's important for all of our sanity to try to separate it out as much as we do things that are totally different so we can then come back to it with kind of fresh eyes and fresh appreciation. Totally. Is your family, is your dad excited that you're, you found your way into the wine world? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny because when we told him we wanted to make rosé, he was sort of scoffed it off and was like, you can't sell a bottle of rosé for more than $12 and you would lose money. Um, and we told him that we thought he was wrong and that we would prove him wrong. And so I think he is very, um, very proud of us that we did it anyways. Um, and I think he, he loves most of our wine. I don't, I still don't think he gets the cans, um, but he, he gets, I mean, he gets that they're successful, but doesn't get why. <laughs> um, but I think um, both my, my dad and my mom are very happy that we live back in Napa now and, um, and can kind of share share that part of our life. What are you currently obsessed with? Who are you obsessed with? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, I mean, I think that there are, I think that what the climate over the last six months has shown us is it hasn't created trends so much as it has um, just accelerated existing trends. And I think that there are certain things like um, 
sort of not your traditional style restaurants, for instance. Um, like there is a, um, a company, I don't even know what exactly to call them, company based in Napa called Contimo Provisions. Um, there are a couple of guys that started out selling sandwiches and cured meat at the farmer's market. And they um, slowly expanded and started making cookies and NOLA cold brew. And they um, eventually got like a little window um, where they sold food out of and they started making salads and frying chickens to go. And now they've bought, uh, not bought, but they're, they've rented a space in downtown Napa um, they can't afford to do the build out. And so they have like a piece of plywood with posters up that covers the back half of it, but they have a counter and um, a line out the door with people ordering. And I think it's so inspiring to see people who vision for their business and they know that they can't do it right this second, but it doesn't stop them from starting. Um, and so I think that anyone that's, that's doing that is, is super inspiring to me. Um, and people that are finding ways to um, kind of reshape the industry, like Contimo is not a traditional restaurant by any sense. I think that maybe at the beginning that made people confused with what they were. But now I think more than ever, people are realizing like traditional restaurants may be not like the future of the world the way that they were for so long. Um, I think that things like to go and virtual restaurants and delivery and virtual restaurants um, are gonna be a lot more popular. And I think that Contimo was kind of like ahead of that curve, not because they knew that this was coming, but just because they saw a shift in what they wanted and that that space was empty. Um, and so I think um, businesses like that are really inspiring. That's so cool. Sounds yummy and fun. One of my last questions, what are you looking forward to? What's something that's coming up that maybe you're working on or you're just dreaming about? So I have a lot going on. Um, it is August 12th. And so harvest is like a couple days away. I think the earliest we've ever picked is August 15th. And I think that this year might be right about the same. So we're looking at our first pick for rosé probably in like the next three to four days. So we always get kind of like the pre-harvest jitters. There's a heat wave coming. And so we're like, you know, standing over the grapes, just basically like, wait, are you ready? You ready? You ready? Um, and we're going to um, make a couple of fun new things this year, which I'm really excited about. Um, it then that brings, it like gives me all the excitement and it gives my husband all the anxiety. So where I just think about like, how fun is this going to be? What kind of label are we going to put on it? And Kyle thinks like, how are we going to truck the fruit all the way from that vineyard that's three hours away from here? Or, um, you know, I've never made this certain wine before. We don't have the machine to get it cold enough. Um, and so, and I'm always like, we'll figure it out. But the truth is like, we won't just figure it out. Someone needs to do what Kyle does. And so um, between the two of us, I think we'll be able to figure it out. But um, there are some fun things coming for us for harvest this year. So that's very exciting. Where can people find paper planes, find you, find the cans? Yeah, so um, Instagram is the best way to connect with us. We're at paper planes wine. In California, you can find us in um, like the Napa, Sonoma area in San Francisco and in Los Angeles at um, several wine shops and restaurants. You can always find us online at 
paperplaneswine.shop. Um, we have a wine club called Flight Club, which is um, a shipment just once every six months. So it's not an overwhelming amount of wine. Um, and so that's been a fun way that we've been able to connect with a lot of new people. And um, also, as I mentioned, we're doing virtual wine tastings now, which has been super fun for us to get to host people because we never did wine tastings before because we didn't have a tasting room. Um, and so that's been a really fun new way to connect with people. Cool. We've done some Instagram lives too, which um, are just a little bit more nerve wracking than like necessary. So I don't know that we're going to be doing those anymore, but um, it's, I think the virtual tastings are here to stay. They're, they're really fun. They're really fun. And it's a good way to get to know the people behind it. Um, even outside of the wine industry, I'm seeing a lot more founders or makers, people involved showing up and um, it's connection that we're all craving to people, yeah. but also to the things that we enjoy and consume, especially lovely, yeah. simple pleasures like. Uh, I loved the little learnings in that episode with Laura. And if you are a fan of rosé or wine in general, please check out their brand, Paper Plains. It is adorable and the wine is really great quality i love the cans too just for fun and on the go and something casual but what i took away from this is a couple things one is the fact that a big part of the inspiration for creating their brand had to do with a place that they want to shop and the place you visualize the product would be sold which inherently builds success into the brand because it was created for one of the consumers which is the retailers which is really interesting and the fact that um, we live in a digital world and as she calls it appearing busy is really important and my translation of appearing busy is just showing your life showing the business showing the behind the scenes of the brand and how she particularly emphasized partnerships and how helpful that was and how they utilized it to test and tap into other audience bases and bring them along their journey as customers. And a very valid point that, you know, those types of things don't always prove to be money makers off the bat or, you know, it's not a place you're gonna be selling necessarily a lot of product, but in the long term, it's much of a more strategic brand build because it gives you exposure and in the right places creates evangelists for your brands by aligning with other like-minded brands in other industries as well. So I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Laura and until next week when we chat with another lovely lady brand. Enjoy. Enjoy.